Hello and welcome to Notes from Musicians' Kitchens. I'm Jennifer Johnston and during this series I'll be talking to prominent music professionals about the relationship between food and music and everything in between. Notes from Musicians' Kitchens is a subscription-only online cookbook and mixology resource written by musicians from all over the world, sharing their food traditions and tastes to raise money for Help Musicians UK, a charity financially assisting musicians adversely affected by the music industry shutdown during the COVID-19 pandemic. Food is not just a universal need, but also a universal link to our homes and communities, and a universal pleasure, just like music. We rely on food in the same way that we rely on music during extraordinary times like these, to bring structure and a feeling of normality to our days, to alleviate boredom and frustration, to entertain, to strengthen the feeling of community, and to bring comfort, joy and solace. Notes from Musicians' Kitchens is a means of digitally breaking bread with each other, of sharing and appreciating our diverse food cultures, and of creating new memories. Please subscribe at www.notesfrommusicianskitchens.com. It's a one-off payment of only £10, every penny of which is a donation to Help Musicians UK. And you can also follow our progress on our dedicated Facebook and Instagram pages. I'm delighted that my guest this week is the British superstar violinist Tasman Little, who talks to me about making the difficult decision to retire and how she has coped with having her final concert plans disrupted by lockdown. Practicing with intention, ditching carbs and eating for health, the scandal of royalties for artists from streaming, the predicament that the music industry is in, the critical importance of music education making musical postcards to raise money for Help Musicians UK, and what life will look like once she puts her violin away for good. Now to introduce my guest. Tasman Little, OBE, the multi-award-winning British violinist, is widely acclaimed as both a concerto soloist and as a chamber musician. The protégé of Yehudi Menuhin and a great champion of the works of Delius and Elgar, she has performed as a soloist with all of the world's major orchestras and conductors to huge acclaim. A passionate advocate for music education, she has just been appointed as co-president of the Yehudi Menuhin School alongside Daniel Barenboim. Lucky students. I'm delighted that she now joins me. Welcome to Notes from Musicians' Kitchens. Hello, Tasman. It's so lovely to see you. How are you doing? I'm very well, Jennifer. I mean, the funny thing is that I feel I know you, even though this is actually the first time we've spoken in person, but we've got so many mutual friends. I've heard you on the radio and thought, wow, she's amazing. And now here we are. We're finally actually we're speaking and I'm looking at you. It's great. Yes, it's a huge pleasure. I'm very grateful that you're spending the time to talk to me today. It's been such an odd period for everybody. And in particular you, I've thought of you a number of times because here you are supposed to be doing your final tour before retirement and then all of it's been thrown out of sync. How are you going to manage the rest of the year? Have you decided yet? It's been, as you say, a a very 
weird time and um, quite discombobulating because, as you rightly point out, this was supposed to be, I was supposed to be leading up to a grand finale. I was to have had a prom. I was to have done a huge concert at the Queen Elizabeth Hall, um, which would would have been with my three pianists, my long-term pianist partners, um, and so many festivals. I was supposed to go and play in Moscow. Lots and lots of things that I was looking for to that felt like it was going to be a kind of grand finale and a big summing up of of everything or not everything that I've done over the last 30 years but but a way of thanking everybody and having an opportunity to go out in with a certain sense of style and of course this has changed beyond all recognition and the honest answer is I really don't know what will happen um, in the rest of the year I think they're so little that we know about how and when we're going to be able to perform again and actually i've even come to terms with the fact that i may have done my last concert without even knowing it gosh that's a big thing to have to face as well isn't it psychologically if you were told though that we could go back to work but not until middle of 2021 how would you feel about that i've had many uh, requests for concerts into next year and i've i've done so much soul searching of course because of the situation and because I love performing and I wouldn't like to think that I won't ever walk on stage again. But the problem is, where do you draw the line? So, for instance, I had a concert that was offered to me in March with a wonderful orchestra, someone that, an orchestra you know well. And uh, this was offered to me a couple of months ago. And I said no, that I was definitely, you know, having delayed once, I was supposed to finish at the end of August and I decided to carry on until the end of the year. And so I said no, that I was definitely uh, finishing in December. And since then, many, many other offers have come in um, of things that, um, you know, under other circumstances, I would have loved to have done. But, you know, do you carry on until March? And then what about the festivals? And then if you're carrying on until July, then how about carrying on till August in case you get a prom? You know, it just... It, it doesn't end. So I thought it, I have to draw a line somewhere. I'd made a decision to stop. I am good with that decision. I, you know, it wasn't a snap decision. It wasn't an overnight, hey, wouldn't it be fun just to stop? But um, I came to that conclusion that I was ready to do different things. And that still stands. And what's been interesting about this period has been it's, uh, for all of us, I think, a, an enforced sabbatical and I've never taken a sabbatical I've never taken any time off at all and so it's been quite it's been quite eye-opening to have a little taste of what it's like not to play concerts and how it feels to even not practice very much and I haven't been practicing very much but perhaps we can talk about that in a minute. It's a big psychological barrier though isn't it once you've made a decision to retire as well that the thought of then having to pick all of that up again I mean you say about talking about practicing I think the one thing that singers differ from instrumentalists in is that we quite simply can't practice for 12 hours a day whereas your life is very different in that respect do you find that your body has thanked you for not practicing endless hours 
Yes, it has very much so. I mean, I've never been one to practice um, even eight hours a day. I, uh, for a long, long, long time, I've haven't done more than four hours. And sometimes, and you know what it's like to have children, um, you know, that really is a game changer as far as trying to fit practice in to one's life. So um, I, I've become incredibly efficient at practicing and I was never one for clocking up hours anyway. I think that that's a thoughtless way of practicing. I think practicing has got to be about making decisions about what you want to do artistically with a piece of music. And then the stuff you do on your instrument is finding a way to make those thoughts come into reality. So a lot of practice for me goes away from the violin and it goes on inside and it goes on emotionally and then you get to your instrument and you think oh that doesn't sound very good let me try it a different way and you just you know it's just working out how you solve the problems but in many pieces of music I'm sure it's the same for you you we've all done our scales we've all done our studies ever since we were dot years old you, there's certain things you just don't have to practice it's it's easy it's child's play for us we have to practice the awkward passages or we have to practice perhaps a passage if you need some for me for us um instrumentalists it's a sort of digital memory let's say a fast bit of passage work in mendelssohn violin concerto unless your fingers know where they've got to go next you haven't got time to think about every note so it has to just be automatic so that sort of practice obviously that takes a certain amount of time in order for it to become automatic but a lot of other practice is not necessary and I very rarely play a piece of music that I know well through um, a lot before I actually stand up on stage and perform it I might play it once or twice but the rest it will be honing in on those problems that I frequently have to um, rework out how I'm going to resolve. So I've never practiced in a mindless fashion. I've, it's always been um, with intention. That's massively useful advice for any young musician listening, actually. I think it's very tempting when you're very young to think that the more hours you spend, um, the better you'll be without the thought behind all of that. Um, yeah. I know that both your children are very musical. How how do they feel about the prospect of having you at home a lot more? <laughs> well, um, perhaps I'm flattering myself, but I've got to say that we have all loved this period of lockdown. So I'm I'm on my own with the two of them, um, and uh, I I do think that you know with with any family situation, it's about deciding what you want to do together rather than just a blanket, okay, we're locked down and that's that, you're stuck with me forever and ever. I've actually loved being at home uh, for all this time. I, I I do love being at home and that's one of the reasons why I've decided to give up this rather crazy um, endless touring lifestyle that I've had for the last 30 years. It's it's because I want to be at home more. I want to spend more time with my mother. I want to be able to go and visit my father who lives quite a long way away. Um, so the I've, I don't think I've been at home as much ever in my lifetime. So um, it, it's, it's actually been really wonderful. Um, and I, I'd like to flatter myself that even my children quite like having me at home we've had so much fun you know we cook together and we play games we've been watching Netflix I've discovered Netflix do you know I before lockdown I had never watched anything on Netflix 
Um, I realize I've got a lot of catching up to do. You know, people have gone on for years about The Crown and various other Netflix series. Um, I'm, I'm currently partway through The Durrells, which I'm, I'm really enjoying. And I've watched all sorts of things with my children. Um, and it's, it's been really great to do that. And I think that lockdown has been such an interesting time for us all to discover things about ourselves, things that we thought we needed that actually we don't, and things that we realize we need more than we'd realized. And um, so for, for me, having this time at home has been reassuring in that actually I don't have itchy feet at all. I have absolutely no desire to get on an aeroplane and go anywhere at all. We've been lucky with the weather for the most part, of course. I've um, devoted myself to walking and um, every day, pretty much without exception, um, I've walked up to see my mother who um, is in the vulnerable category. So um, she, she's not supposed to leave the house and um, you know, so I, I go and I visit her and we socially distance, et cetera, et cetera. But it means I'm walking for about two hours each day. And um, that's been great. I think I'm fitter than I've been <laughs> probably since I was about 14 years old or maybe not even then. So um, it's been it's been great to actually um find different routines to to enjoy and it's not that I'm a person of great routine I think if you're a musician you actually can't be too wedded to routine because we can't live like that it, things don't go according to plan you have to be able to make it up on the spot so um, it's more I suppose rather than routine it's more a question of focus I've focused on walking and getting fitter and I've focused on being here for people who need me um, and nurturing myself a little bit more than perhaps I have in the past. And you are looking brilliant because not only have you been exercising, you've been really clever and designed yourself a diet that's meant that you are slimmer than ever. Uh, for a long time, I've realized that um, carbohydrate and me are not very good bedfellows. And so um, I uh, really for actually many years, I've followed, uh, I wouldn't call it a diet at all. It's just a, a way of eating that concentrates on lots of fruit and vegetables, which I love, and protein, which I also love. And, you know, I've always enjoyed fish and poultry and um, good old juicy steak and stuff like that and so um but I love vegetarian food as well and uh, so I'm, I'm quite creative with uh with cooking in a vegetarian style um but uh once lockdown started because just before that I was on tour in Asia and Australia and because it was my last time in both of those places um professionally I was wined and dined and wined and dined again and again and again and well I mean there's only so much careful eating one can do and there was a bit of a sense of okay come on let's just push the boat out and enjoy this because even though we weren't sure whether um, lockdown was going to happen it looked increasingly likely and it, and so I was also seeing people that I knew I wouldn't see see for quite a while um, so I indulged and came back a good seven pounds heavier than actually I really wanted to be so I just decided to um, 
take some action and my birthday was coming up and when my birthday comes up I never like to think that um it's another year later and I'm you know however much heavier so I just uh took took a decision I was going to walk a lot and pursue this um eating plan a lot uh, a lot more carefully but it's been fun and um I've enjoyed it a lot and uh, even made some crazy videos of myself cooking various things or just having a laugh I mean you know that's the thing about lockdown we, we've just decided haven't we all to to do life a little bit differently the interesting thing about your food choices um eating in that manner is how colorful the food is as well and that's actually lovely to see I think a lot of us have got quite stuck in a rut with food which is um perhaps comforting the sort of lasagnas or the cottage pies the lovely thing about your food is is it actually is like a symphony on a plate. It has all this magic thrown in. Um, That's also very appealing to eat then. So that, I think, improves mood as well as body. And that's something that's been really important for a lot of people generally during this lockdown period is finding ways of motivating, getting up in the morning, what are you going to do with your day? It's lovely to hear from you that, that it hasn't been a negative thing in many respects, albeit with the uncertainty of career behind it. Yes. Um, I, I mean, I am a very positive person. I think this um, period of time has challenged me because obviously I've had to let go of plans and hopes and uh, preparations and expectations. And I think that's hard for all of us. And I also believe that one of the most difficult things for any human being, uh, doesn't matter what profession you're in, I feel that human beings... Um, cope with uncertainty very badly we even if it's our health we just want the doctor to to tell us what is wrong with us or what's going on or we want to know just how bad the bank balance is rather than it may be this or it may be that or it may be the other you just once you know what something is you you know you're in a position then to take action and deal with it or bury your head in the sand depending on on what kind of a person you are um and so that one of the hardest things that i've had to get to grips with is this feeling of not knowing and of it having to be fine no matter what and i think recently i i turned a corner with that i've i've been up and down i think um i'm sure most people in our profession have had their moments of um a great deal of worry, particularly financial worry, um, but also a feeling of um, kind of bereavement for things that we would have been doing um, and people we would have been working with and, and making beautiful music with. I'm sure you you feel exactly the same way. You've been particularly looking forward to such and such a project and it's not going to happen at the moment. Of course, for you, um, there's always a possibility that you'll make it happen in, in the future. And for me, I'm not going to um, take that road uh, because of the decisions that I have now taken. Um, so it really has to be a letting go process and I, I have to be fine with it. And, um, you know, I spoke earlier about having plenty of soul searching. What Was I making the right decision or not? But um, I have made it and I am comfortable with it and I do feel that it's the right decision although I know that I will still continue to experience moments of sadness of things that um, haven't happened or now will never happen. 
I think the word bereavement is a very accurate one for many in the music profession. I've found in particular that taking everything day by day rather than looking too far into the future very much helps. I don't think any of us know what's around the corner, particularly at the moment. We don't even know um, insofar as arts organisations themselves, if, if any will not be there after this period because of you know financial strain. And so it's very important to find a way of motivating us through the period that we're in. One of the lovely things um, you've done, which I've enjoyed watching, are the postcards to people to raise money for Help Musicians UK. They're so lovely. What a great thing to do for people. It's such a personal touch. Presumably you're still okay to do those sorts of things where there's where you can do them from home and, and yeah. also earn money for a really worthwhile charity. Absolutely. Well, um, the way that that all came about was that um, a lot of people that I know were having certain birthdays, special birthdays, or even not special birthdays, um, and not being able to see their friends or family. And then even more difficult, people who knew uh, other people who were unwell, or even then they died and that person was in great distress because they hadn't been given an opportunity to say goodbye. And um, that really got to me uh, in, a, um, in a deep way. I felt very, very sad that, um, you know, this most human thing of us wanting to connect, of us wanting to be able to see people who we care about and not being able to, and particularly not being able to during difficult times, that um, just made me think there's got to be some way of connecting and um, trying to connect people to their loved ones through music. And so, um, and of course, I've been watching all the things that um, Help Musicians UK have been doing in order to try to support people in the profession who are going through great hardship and of course the longer this goes on the worse it gets for everybody and uh, we are all affected um in 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 different ways but we are all financially affected um you know so none of us is unscathed by this at all but um what i thought i wanted to do was try to do two things try to provide a way um, of sending greetings to people through music that would be meaningful as and at the same time raise money for the charity that is specifically helping my colleagues and friends and um, so it's been surprisingly hard work it really has oh, it, that's um, quite clear because you have to prepare for each one individually which is a, like a little mini recital each time it, you've hit the nail on the head, and um, you know I would I receive these messages. They come um, through my website and via an app, and people write a little bit about the person that they want to send the message to and the reason why they want to send the message, and then perhaps an indication of the kind of music that this person enjoys. And so then I've got to translate all of that wrap it all up into a verbal message that it feels natural despite the fact I don't I don't even know that person I probably don't even know the person that's sending the message but try to find a way whereby I am the vehicle that that person is speaking through and the music is the rest of the that um, part of communication uh, and so yes it's been very um, hard work each message has taken me minimum 45 minutes to really prepare it because I have to 
really think about everything and it's all recorded in one hit. So I move from the verbal um, greeting on to hopefully playing a piece of music as well as I possibly can, not making any mistakes on any of it. And I've got to praise both of my children, my daughter, Chloe, who's 19, and my son, Ashley, who's 17, because Ashley has been the cameraman. And sometimes he is standing there for five or six minutes holding my phone as still as possible. That's, that's really hard work. And then Chloe, bless her, she's accompanied me on the piano and even on the guitar because somebody wrote and wanted something Welsh and I don't play anything Welsh so I was looking up Welsh folk songs and fell in love with this particular I, I spent two days memorizing this Welsh folk song and then writing down the chord progression for Chloe and then she um, learnt it on the guitar and we played this version um, uh, uh, you know which we'd specially prepared so I mean that wasn't just a question of an hour or so recording it we spent two days preparing it and then someone else wanted something that was very specifically to do with the first date that they had gone on when they got to see this musical so I had to find the music and a friend sent me the music because of course you know getting music in lockdown is not very easy so again Chloe and I learned it so yeah we've we've uh, we've we've put in the hours I can say that but it has been rewarding and I have been sent so many um, messages from people who've just said this is amazing I cannot think of a more individual and special gift so that has made it worthwhile and of course the uh, help that um, you know and the, the, the money that has been able to be sent to um, the charity so yeah it's a it was a good it is a good thing to do and I am continuing to do it. And lovely to have the memory of playing with Chloe, of course. I always think as a mum, it's so special to have those things to have in perpetuity that you can look back on and say, well, look, this is what we did together. You know. Absolutely. And actually, it's quite funny because I was invited to go and talk on the Today programme uh, for Radio 4. And um, uh, at the end of the programme, uh, they're doing just a short snippet of, um, of a musician who's to play them out into the nine o'clock pits. And so they said they wanted to do an extended uh, thing for me and they wanted me to talk about um, lockdown. They wanted to talk about all sorts of things. And, um, and then would I play them out? So I was trying to think, okay, Radio 4, what do people on a Friday morning or whatever morning it was want to hear at just before 9am? Nobody really wants a bit of Bartok or anything like that. So I was trying to think, okay, what can I do? And then I thought, I'd heard um, on Radio 3, and I don't know whether you've been doing the sing-along, the Friday sing-along. You'd be amazing for this sing-along that Petrock uh, Trelawney does um, with Anna Tilbrook. And, and the, what, the first thing that they did was Somewhere Over the Rainbow. And I was just so moved, I could hardly sing. I was just all choked up. So I thought, okay, Somewhere Over the Rainbow it is. And um, Chloe um, already knows how to play a beautiful version of it on the piano. So anyway, we get to the morning itself and we're supposed to be rung up by the Radio 4 producer at 10 to 9 and it's 5 to 9 they still haven't rung up and I said to Chloe I don't know what's going on I kept looking frantically at my phone wondering if it had turned itself off or something dreadful anyway they just got frightfully behind time so then we did this interview and I packed as much as I possibly could into about a minute and a half of speech. And then they said, right, OK, now now you're going to play us out. And Chloe started on her introduction, which was beautiful. It was very tastefully done. And then I played all of about seven notes before they faded out and into the pits. And it was very funny because 
And Chloe said, I'm so sorry, they've played more of me than you. And I said, actually, I love it. I really love that you've just had a starring role on Radio 4. It didn't matter to me in the slightest um, because, you know, it was, it, we just tried our best to provide something. But there was quite a storm on Twitter afterwards. People were incensed that I'd only been allowed to play seven notes. So there we go. Now, there's something else that you mentioned during that interview that's also caused a complete storm, which you and I have discussed, which is that I don't know how many millions of recordings are played of yours are streamed um, across all streaming services, but you received about £12 in royalties from several million streamings. Well, um, I know what I received. I don't know the exact figures as far as how many streams, but I have um, uh, something in the region of 755,000 monthly um, listeners. And so if you convert that into streams um, per six-month period, um, as a very conservative guest, that comes in at about five or six million. And that's just if, you know, if people choose just one piece. And very often people choose an awful lot more than one piece. So anyway, for approximately that minimum, I mean, possibly a great deal more, I got the sum of £12.34. Um, and it is quite uh, disgraceful and um, disgusting, really. And um, I, I feel, uh, as do many artists, and you do as well, that this uh, it, there's something deeply wrong whereby a company that is going into profit is uh, and wouldn't even exist without people such as you and me who've made the recordings in the first place. It is quite um, disgraceful that the artists receive such a pitiful amount of royalties. Now, I mean, a lot of people have pointed the finger at um, the record companies. Um, but actually, I know that my current record company isn't doing really any much better than I am. So it cannot be the record companies. I know that um, publishing companies um, are further up the ladder in terms of what they receive. Um, so there are various sort of tiers and levels of what people do receive as a percentage. Uh, but certainly the percentage that um, that you and I are getting, Jennifer, is, is, is quite wrong. The figure that I have, which was from a recording of You'll Never Walk Alone that I made with the Royal Liverpool Philharmonic Orchestra, um, was that just over 23,000 streams equated to 54 pence in royalties. What I was then told was that if we were still in the older system of buying track, because You'll Never Walk Alone went to number one in the chart, I would have received approximately £13,500. So that's the difference. And I think that the trouble with streaming as it now is set up. Somebody somewhere is making money, but it's definitely not us. And it's definitely not my record company. I think it depends on what deal the record companies themselves have. And if they're small and independent... They don't have any sway, I don't think, with the likes of Apple or Spotify. And we get more royalties from Apple than we do from Spotify. And of course, there are other platforms involved. But it is very difficult. And one thing that I think, you know, has begun, and of course, there's a, there's a campaign now to sort of try and sort this out. But it's not really clear what we can do. Have you got any clear ideas about what, where you think we should go with all of this? I don't. And um, I know about the campaign, um, Broken Record. The thing is that I don't know many musicians who can fight expensive legal battles, but that's probably what it would take. Uh, the, maybe the big major companies um, might have the funds to do that. Uh, but I think the only thing that would actually change the situation is if 
the public stopped using the service. Given that's highly unlikely, it does feel like we've been backed into a bit of a corner. Of course, the trouble is that legal action is also territorial. So it would need to be brought in every country where there is a, an audience for that streaming service. It's very complicated. The only thing I can think is that if enough shame is brought to bear across all artists, I don't just mean classical artists, I mean, you know, the biggest names in pop as well, their situation must be similar to ours unless they create the music themselves. That's a different scenario. But where they're recording covers or, you know, other people have written the, the pop songs or whatever, they'll be in the same boat as we are. And so I think perhaps it's a question of collective global action by artists. It's just going to take a while to, to build up momentum, I think. It is going to take a while. And actually, um, in my experience, artists are not normally combative. Um, witness the fact that very few people have spoken out um, and really shouted about how hideously we are all being treated by the government at the moment and how many of us are getting nothing at all from them because we fall through the cracks and 40% of musicians fall through the cracks. So it's not just, we're not talking a tiny proportion here. We are talking nearly half of musicians don't qualify for various reasons. It's not because we all earn too much. You know, somebody who's only been self-employed for a certain amount of time doesn't qualify. So there's all sorts of reasons why people don't qualify and it's not because we're all stinking rich because we're not and um, so it is you know it's very very wrong but trying to get people to speak up and um, talk about it isn't very easy and so I cannot I'm somewhat doubtful that enough musicians are going to stand up and and yell, uh, which is what it would really take. So, I mean, you know, this is where I suppose some sort of professional body would be really helpful, some professional body with some clout to help to just bring this to enough people's attention. Um, and obviously the media can help as well, but uh, without a sort of really streamlined, concerted effort, I don't really see how enough shame is going to be brought um, upon people in order to persuade them to change. You know, it was going to have to be pretty big because why on earth would they let go of large profits just because a few people say it's not fair? Well, the other thing is, though, if people got weight and momentum behind them, that's when record companies themselves say, we're not putting our music onto your service. Instead, we're going to set up our YouTube platform. You might be, have to pay a fee to listen, you know, per track or perhaps by, by album. Um, but that that could be the, the thing in, in coming years, because if record companies aren't making the money either, so then is a diminishing amount of money to make recordings in the first instance. Absolutely. And, and we're already in a, a fairly dire straits in terms of economic realities after the crisis that we're in. And then we haven't even hit Brexit yet properly. So it's a it's sort of a double whammy, isn't it, at the moment? It's a triple whammy. Triple whammy. Yeah. Triple whammy. So, uh, yeah, I, I agree. It is, this is not, uh, it's not a very rosy outlook the only thing um because i did say i'm a very positive person so um the, that aspect of me has to come out at this point in time and say that musicians are some of the most creative people walking on the planet and if anybody can find a way to make it work it will be 
these wonderfully creative people who um, must make music, who passionately want to connect with their audiences. And so, um, and also, I mean, quite frankly, if music did disappear and there's no live music, what's everybody going to do? What's going to happen to all those festivals, Glastonbury and the proms and stuff like that? Can't help feeling that we might be missed once we're gone. The only danger is that once we're gone, it's very difficult to rebuild something. You can't just do that in three seconds flat. And you know, as well as I do, it takes years to train to be a good musician. It takes even longer to become a really experienced and mature artist. And so, you know, you can't just go, oh, well, that's it. It's not going to, um, we don't need this. Oh, dear, where have you all gone? And then, you know, to, to make it all reemerge um, will take uh, quite some doing, I think. But um, I do feel that when, when, it, when we're really down to the wire, um, which is sort of happening now, uh, I do feel that something, you know, people will really begin to um to shout and scream and then something uh, must happen um so I, I i do remain cautiously optimistic for the long term i'm not really sure about the short to mid term i think that's a view that's held collectively in reality i don't think you're thinking any differently to anybody interesting from what you've just said as well though it, it's not just about the training as a musician and about being a mature artist it also takes maturity to be able to walk onto the platform at the albert hall for the proms in front of an audience of six thousand and not crumble under pressure um, there's so many different aspects psychologically to coping with this crisis and then getting people back out anyway to play to audiences of that scale. So we've, we've got a long road ahead. I, like you, am trying to remain positive because otherwise, what, what do we do? And in your case, some of that has to be funneled now into looking at the future in a different anyway, regardless of whatever happens with the crisis. As I was pondering my decision now uh, 18 months ago um, to step down from the concert um, platform and stop my crazy touring schedule, I had already been thinking about what I would do um, because I'm 55. I was 53 when I made that decision. And, um, you know, I've still got, I've still got life in me yet. And um, it's not that I want to or could even afford to go and sit on a beach and do nothing for the rest of my life. I'm not that kind of a person. And I, I definitely want more leisure time because I haven't had enough of that. Um, but I also want to feel that I'm still contributing. So one of the really meaningful things that I have um, taken on um, is I'm now president or joint president of my old school, the Yehudi Menuhin School. My other president is Daniel Barenboim, um, but he's a very busy person and um, I am about to become a less busy person. And so um, obviously for many sentimental and personal reasons, uh, this role feels very appropriate. Um, and I've 
had a huge interest in music education for years and years and I've done a lot to go into schools and take music into schools and into the community so um, this whole aspect of um, drawing together these threads together feels very very right Um, and I'm already getting more involved uh, with the school and of course they are coping with this crisis and having to do online lessons and all of this sort of stuff So I think that this will gradually become a greater part of my life as I let go of this other part of my life. Um, So that's that's nice. That feels very right that I have something important um, to focus on. Um, I'm also uh, I have an ongoing relationship with the Royal Academy of Music. So I've been a visiting professor of violin for years and I've gone twice a year to give masterclasses. I'm continuing that um, relationship with the Academy and, um, you know, and I also also want to go to other um, music um, establishments. Uh, in fact, the Purcell School have been in touch. I'm about to make a motivational video for them uh, to play at their virtual assembly, and they'd like me to go there and, and give some workshops and masterclasses. So I will definitely make teaching an aspect of my life, but I don't want to be a full-time teacher either. I want to, I really want to have a much broader range of things that I spend my life doing. I want to continue to be involved in some aspects of music and I've been asked to sit on some international violin competitions and I'll enjoy a little bit of that um, but I don't want to do that full-time either. Um, uh, you know, and I, I really enjoy talking to people about music and um, so I'll be making some programs. I've got three programs that have been commissioned uh, for me to make for Radio 3 um, and so I'll do some broadcasting as well. You know, so, so there'll be a lot of different kinds of things associated with music that I feel that I can really enjoy. And then outside of music, I want to have more time to um, see my friends, uh, go, you know, spend time with my family. My children are about to go off to university. I'll actually have time to go down and visit them from time to time, which will be very nice. I want to take up some hobbies um you know i want actually want to do a proper cookery course so um <laughs> so i i might be able to make an even more professional video one day um and i would love to learn to paint i've never been able to draw in my life um and and i want i'm a very creative person so i want to have outlets for that i actually and i think i better whisper this to you i like singing <laughs> <laughs> I'm very happy to hear that. I think singing's a critical part of musicianship myself, obviously. So, I might even join a choir. If you want a singing lesson, you know who to ask. Thank um, you very much. I find it really interesting, though, that you are becoming so invested in music education. I, like everybody in our profession, am getting increasingly concerned about the amount of music education provision in schools, particularly in state schools. I mean, I, I went actually um, to have a long chat to the folks at DCMS about um, about the aspects of performing that make it very difficult for us in this country. And it was obviously with an eye on Brexit. Um, so, you know, I mean, I, I and I've spoken twice uh, in um, the House of Commons to MPs and members of the Lords about the importance of music and of music education. I, I do think that uh, I do think that I do have a voice that people 
listened to because I've been asked so many times to make the case. And um, I would be devastated uh, to think that music education is just dying a very slow death. Um, but it is looking as though we have to keep our eye permanently on that particular ball. And obviously, um, Incorporated Society of Musicians are very helpful about that. And the whole thing about the EBAC and the campaign to keep music a part of uh, the curriculum, that was, you know, I was involved in that. Now, I wouldn't even be talking to you, Jennifer, if I hadn't been at a state primary school that offered um, music lessons. Um, you know, I mean, it was a, a, a nice state primary school, but nevertheless, it was, um, you know, I was part of that um, aspect of education where it wasn't, I, I wasn't at a private school with having these things offered to me, but they were still there in the 1970s. And so uh, it was because of that. And because I had a violin teacher that picked up immediately on my promise, um, he he was the person that made stuff happen. And it was he that suggested that I should audition at the age of seven for the Uli Minuin School when I hadn't even been learning a year. You know, without that provision, I don't know that I would have had a career in music so it's even more important to me that um that there is state provision for music education that you know it just is important what is the importance of music education and what's the importance of starting young well the i mean it, this is a long conversation and it's quite difficult to condense it into bullet points but um music offers an enormous amount beyond simply the pleasure and um, personal satisfaction of goals and um uh, of of improving and finding that um a, a instrument that seemed impossible and daunting to play is actually possible or, or obviously singing as well if you are training somebody's voice but i can only really speak as far as an instrumentalist is concerned um but it teaches so much more beyond um beyond that obviously it's teaching us how to use our bodies and use them um, and in a different way to, um, you know, being fed information and retaining it. Um, it's the only activity that uses both uh, sides of the brain. So it is the most fantastic workout for one's brain. And there have been now so many studies that show that learning a musical education has an incredibly positive effect on the rest of academic studies. And there's a school in Bradford that was failing and it was being taken into special measures and a new head was brought in and he put music at the top of the priority list every single pupil in that school was given an instrument to learn and he had turned that place around in just a matter of a short few months and um you know i just think that we can't we can't ignore this reality, it's not even just a theory at this point, it is reality. And um, I've visited a wonderful school in the eastern part of London, which is um, a, a primary school where they use the Kodai method. So they teach through singing and there is, there's no truancy, there's no absenteeism, there are no discipline problems in the school. Their um, academic achievements are absolutely fantastic. Um, and all of the effects of this then, of course, beautifully spill out into the rest of the community. 
community. So it isn't even just what goes on within the walls of the school, it's the effect that it has on the community. And you would know this as well, Jennifer, because of the In Harmony project that the Royal Liverpool Philharmonic um, Orchestra are involved with. And I went there many, many years ago. And um, in fact, I'm supposed to hopefully be doing a concert in Liverpool in the autumn. I do hope it will take place. And I'm going to go and see um, the folks at the In Harmony project because now some of the pupils that I would have seen when it started up are now volunteers themselves. So it would be wonderful to go and see them if I possibly can. Music education also, I think, offers self-confidence in all aspects of physical being as well. It's very interesting watching children who start quite bowed, who don't have the capacity to even look you straight in the eye and see how much they come out of themselves and start to be able to express themselves too. It does unlock such potential. And it's actually really exciting to watch that happen. Performing is one thing, but I think getting out into the community in particular and seeing, you know, what you can give in a much more personal level rather than just, you know, performing to two and a half thousand people in a concert hall is a very, very different experience and it's a very enriching experience for all of us. It is. It's it's extremely personal. And um, there's something else that, um, that I feel is an essential part of keeping um, music in the national curriculum. And that is that not everybody ticks the box of being brilliant at English or maths or science. You know, there are plenty of very intelligent people for whom those subjects are just not where they shine. And yet, you know, there's no no lack of ability there. And music can enable um, children to find their voice, literally, and it can enable them to feel very good about themselves and feel that they have something where they really do shine and excel. And I think that it's that's why actually just a balanced curriculum, it isn't even just about music, we just need a balanced curriculum because every, I do believe that every single person walking on the planet has a talent, but it isn't necessarily going to be to be a great writer or an incredible mathematician. I am useless at maths. Maths was a completely closed book and still is. Um, I never got it, even though I can work out immensely complicated rhythms in the Ligeti Violin Concerto, rhythms that many people would struggle with, I can do it. So my brain has got an aptitude for maths and I am not stupid, but maths itself in the way that it is taught and the way it's expected to be regurgitated during exams, for me, that just wasn't happening. Now, if I had been boxed in and somebody said, okay, fine, we're just going to um, evaluate you on the strength of your mathematical capability. Well, poor me, you know, RIP my <laughs> my academic qualifications. Um, so, you know, it's it really is important to uh, enable every child in our country to have an opportunity to find out the subjects where they feel they are really natural, where they feel they have just found their niche and their ability to shine. I think the key word there is enable, but it doesn't just enable them at school level, it also then enables them to enter the creative industries, which contribute a vast amount to our economy each year. And I think that's what a lot of us find so short-sighted, that here we are with 40% of the musical profession not being even entitled to government help during this crisis. And yet, as a as a motor in the economy, it's it produces more money than farming. So there's a huge irony there. 
There is a huge irony there. And the other um, the other thing that I, I want to say is that we've all been in lockdown now um, for quite a while. And uh, other than obviously the essential workers, et cetera, et cetera, many, many people in this country, vast majority of people have been at home and bored. And what have people turned to at this point in time? Um, they've turned to the arts. They've been watching Netflix. They've been um, streaming and listening to music. They've been entertaining themselves in a whole variety of ways. Now, if we have no entertainment industry, um, except for what comes from other countries, um, first of all, I think people would just wonder what's going on and where we all are. Um, but secondly, I think we lose part of our identity in this country. We are lauded abroad for, I mean, you know, very um, visibly for our um, actors uh, who are permanently winning uh, all sorts of incredible awards. And, you know, we really are top of the tree as far as um, that, that aspect of our creative life is concerned. Um, but our musicians are lauded abroad as well. And so, um, you know, and writers and dancers, we just, we are a country that has led the way, but we have slipped quite a few ways down the rungs down the ladder, if you like. And, um, you know, we need to refine that pride in what we can contribute. But the government and you know, people in this country need to remember what it is that we are providing as well. You know, I think that there can be a temptation because it's seen as entertainment to feel that it's flimsy, that it's not the fabric of our society, but it really is. And um, I, I honestly think that people, if you took away their television sets or, or Netflix or streaming or the radio uh, other than, um, what, you know, speaking programs, People would, I don't think they'd last a day without going, there's something missing. What do you think is the future for us? Would, if you had to predict, do you have any clue about where you think we might have to go? That is very, very reliant on how much support we are given. Because if there's the support for it, what I would really like to see happen is for there to be a dedicated programme um, and I don't mean television program, I mean um, a, a, a project put in place whereby um, pupils at primary school and also at secondary school are given an opportunity to experience live entertainment. So I wonder whether maybe um, some of the future could be, and this is obviously maybe with rose-tinted spectacles from me, but I would love to see opportunities for uh, school children um, to go into fantastic concert halls and see orchestras and soloists up on stage and experience live ballet experience live theatre so that they don't feel that this is some strange world that they are not a part of or that they don't understand or that the door is closed to. I would say that from our performance perspective, maybe we're going to see um, shorter concerts with fewer members of the audience taking place at different times of the day. Make for quite a long day for you and I, but, um, uh, you know, that might 
certainly temporarily that might be a way of getting people back into um, concert halls and I just feel that it does have to remain an important essential part of the curriculum even once we are talking about um, children taking GCSEs and A-levels everybody needs to let off steam everybody has to find a way to um, relax outside of just homework, homework, homework. And I've now had two children go through GCSEs and A-levels. And um, I know how important it was for both of them to just get away from school books and find a way of um, of relaxing and taking the pressure off. So I think this is where the arts have a real contribution to make. Thank you to Tasman for joining me and talking so openly and honestly about making the difficult decision to retire and how she's coped with having her final concert plans disrupted by lockdown, about practising with intention, ditching carbs and eating for health, the scandal of royalties for artists from streaming, the predicament that the music industry is in, the critical importance of music education making musical postcards to raise money for Help Musicians UK, and what life will look like once she puts her violin away for good. Please support Notes from Musicians' Kitchens by subscribing to our website, www.notesfrommusicianskitchens.com. It's only a tenner, and every penny is going to Help Musicians UK, a great cause. Make sure to tune into the next episode where I'll be talking to another music professional about what food means to them. Keep an eye on Instagram to discover their identity. Thank you for listening. Stay safe. And remember, food is love.